recorded as a living testament and recollection of history in the making during our generation. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho. H to the OV. I used to move snowflakes by the OZ. I guess even back then you can call me CEO of the ROC. Ho. Fresh out the frying pan into the fire. I be the Welcome to a very special episode of the Big J and Little J Show. Today we have a special guest, the Stoop football head coach, Mike Elko. Coach, thank you for joining us. No, of course. Thanks for having me on. Now that the season has winded down and now you're in the offseason, what's the day-to-day routine like for you guys? Yeah, I think it mixes between uh, recruiting, spending a lot of time recruiting the 2024 class and evaluating and making sure that thing's going full speed. And then, you know, we'll spend the next few weeks with our guys getting back around them and making sure that they have a presence and see our presence. And then it's kind of just schematic review, making sure we're going back through the season and looking at the things we did, offense, defense, special teams, and trying to figure out what we can do better and what we want to do moving forward into next year. And so try to just set forth a really strong plan headed into spring ball in March. Yeah. Mike, I know um, one of the things I talked to you a couple times in the last year about was being ahead and in, in the recruiting process and starting from so far behind when you got the job is the 24 class, the first one that you're actually like up to speed with and started from a position where everybody else did and you weren't behind the calendar. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think as we've started to swing into to 24, it feels like from a relationship standpoint, we're in a much stronger position with this group than, than we were with the 23s. I think last year, this time, we were just getting to know everybody and having a lot of like first time conversations. Um, whereas with some of these 24s, we've already been in the game seven, eight months uh, from a recruiting standpoint. And so I think, yeah, we, we got to, we kind of started at the beginning of the race with that class and beyond. And so uh, hopefully that pays dividends next December. <clears throat> Coach, to go back on this past season, Duke, wins nine games. I mean, it was a great season for the fans, great season for you year one. Uh, looking back this past season, though, my favorite part has to be your expression from Gatorade Bath 1 against Temple to Gatorade Bath 2 against UCF because I could tell, and then former players that played under you could tell, when you got the first Gatorade Bath, you could tell you left some points on the field. What game in particular this past season did you think that Duke learned how to win, per se, um, I think learned how to win against Wake. I think that was probably the game where, you know, we were in a game against a very competitive opponent and, and obviously Sam Hartman being a very veteran quarterback. And I think for us to come out of that game on top, I think that was a huge uh, game for us heading into the offseason. And just to clean up the Gatorade bath piece, I just felt like at 1-0 and with a win over a non-Power 5, it was probably a little early to be dumping Gatorade on top of me. And so um, not disappointed with the the sentiment, just kind of uh, have higher expectations for Duke football, maybe. Hey, first career win, I can see where it comes from. But, yeah, yeah I, can, I can see that. Who got you with the first one? You know, I don't even remember. I just remember I was going towards midfield, and it caught me blindsided from behind. And I was like, I can't believe I'm going to shake Stan's hand soaking wet in game one because I got dumped with Gatorade. So the UCF one, even though it was a lot colder, you were were a little more receptive to that one? Yeah, I felt like that was a little bit more appropriate. You know, we capped off a nine-win season with a bowl championship. You know, that seems a little bit more Gatorade bath material. Coach, you once said when you're at Division III school that you learned football. 
as a former D3 player and coach myself, I take pride in that sentence because I can see what you're coming from. Can you elaborate that for the listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of different levels of college football. And I think um, there's some levels where kids are, are blessed with a lot of God-given height, weight, speed, and natural athleticism. And, and then there's levels where you're trying to maximize everything a kid can become. And, and I think at the Division three level, you've got a lot of kids who are just playing for the love of the game, but maybe don't have that same God-given talent. Um, and you just got guys that are really willing to work hard and listen to coaching. And as a coach, you're trying to figure out how to get kids to be successful um, and so now all the fine points of technique and steps and eyes and footwork, like all that stuff is the tools that a kid can use to help overcome some of those natural deficiencies. And so I think the lower you are on the coaching scale, sometimes, you know, the more you're forced to really dig into, you know, am I giving this kid the best tool set to go out and be successful? Um, sometimes when you get on the higher ends, kids are just so natural with what they do. Sometimes it's just don't mess them up and, and kind of let them turn it loose and go. I, to follow up that you've coached in many places with many coaches. Is there a specific game or play early in your career that you still think about to this day as like a learning lesson? Um, yeah, probably the one that haunts me the most is we lost the Toledo in overtime my last year at Bowling Green and, or not in overtime on the last drive of the game. Um, it was the chance we had to win the rivalry trophy. Um, we wound on wound up going on to win the Mac, won the championship that year. Um, but yeah, that game, I, I still remember that touchdown like vividly. It was a fourth and nine. They threw it into double coverage. They beat double coverage. And uh, yeah, I remember that one pretty clearly. Yeah, it's funny how that works. I still have a couple in my head that I think about to this day. That was like five or six years ago. If it was double coverage, didn't you have the right call made? <laughs> well, you never have the right call made when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah i can see how that happens yeah if you can't wrap your head around that in this profession you're going to struggle <laughs> <laughs> so coach i was a basketball counselor at a sports camp in new hampshire my year after college football counselor was a former running back at bowling green jamel martin he yeah. said that you are one of the recruiters for him early on in the recruiting process yeah now, i asked jamel this and he's never heard this so it could be a fake story but i heard that you were a big uh, believer in going to caverns and believe, and breathing in the cavern air. Is that true or no? I've never been to a cavern in my life. Okay, so I can tell you right now it was a blog that I saw. It was a Texas A&M blog on Sport SB Nation, so I'm glad that we snipped that out because Jamel was like, I never heard that story. And I was like, well, there's probably not going to be a real thing then. So No, I don't think I've uh, – I remember Jamel. Jamel was a running back from Bolingbrook. Uh, Illinois. I certainly remember that recruitment. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't think I've ever been in a cavern in my life. That's perfectly fine with me. I was telling Connor about that and I was like, I'm just going to wing it because and see if that's <laughs> legit. And I'm glad to know that it's not. But uh, yeah, Janelle Martin is a small world. But what got you into coaching? That's something I'm curious about. Um, Yeah, you know, probably just my passion for football. Like, uh, um, kind of kind of had some coaches in my life. My dad coached Pop Warner. My uncle coached as like an assistant in Pop Warner in high school. Uh, I had a cousin who was a high school head coach. Um, so there was some of that coaching around. Um, but then, you know, just kind of as I got into college and started looking at different things and different avenues, you know, football was just kind of always my passion. And so um, when I got out of Penn, it just kind of was like, I got to chase what I'm passionate about. And uh, see where it goes and and who knew where it would go at that time when I took the job at Stony Brook but uh 
I guess it worked out. I guess I kind of figured my way through this thing. When you were at Stony Brook, was it, is it true that you were going to be a GA on the wide receivers before they did a staff shuffling to linebackers? And if so, do you ever think about what it would be like coaching on the offensive side of the ball? Yeah, it, it is absolutely true. I got hired. The only job they had open was the wide receiver job. And so um, after I got hired, they actually switched OCs and some things switched around and created a position on defense at linebacker. And so they slid me over there to do that. Um, I've always actually, it's been interesting, my journey, because I've worked with a lot of head coaches who are offensive guys, obviously Dave Clawson, Brian Kelly, Jimbo Fisher, you know, all of those guys were offensive coordinators and offensive minded. And so um, I think I have a different perspective on, on defense because I have spent so much time with guys who are offensive minded and how they look at the game of football. Yeah. I mean, that, that fascinates me because I think of uh, Tony Romo calling the games on CBS and early on when he started broadcasting, they said, though he was an offensive, uh, offensive guy, he could be a defensive coordinator because he knows tendencies. And so yeah. I feel like you could do the same thing. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. I think that the ones who do it at a really well good level, they have a good understanding of how both sides of the ball work. I think if you just live in a, a small pyramid, you know, in your circle, um, you're kind of blinded to some things. Mike, we talked about this a, a couple times in the season too, but this going from being a defensive coordinator for so long and being on that side of the ball, uh, only was this year the first year that you kind of actually got back to those I don't know if they're roots if you got reshuffled before you even got into the job but is that kind of this year been a journey back to the offensive side in a way yeah I mean I, I've never sat in an offensive staff meeting I've never been part of offensive game planning and so you know that was one of the things honestly that I, I was most enjoyed in and probably in the beginning spent more time with the offensive staff just because um, I wanted to make sure I knew what we were doing. I wanted to make sure I knew how it was all built. And there was such a learning curve to, to just kind of go through that process with Kevin and the offensive staff. And so, um, yeah, I think that part of it's all been new. Uh, and then just trying to find ways where I can provide value um, to help those guys. And I, I think I've been able to do that. Is there a, is there a language? I know there's a language of football, but is the language of football different when you're in an offensive meeting to a defensive meeting, or is it all just the same? Um, I don't know that it's language. I think it's perspective. And I think it's like when you're a defensive coach, you look at offense a certain kind of way because it's what really matters to the defensive kids. Um, but offense has to look at offense with a much greater detail because they're trying to move their own pieces and parts around. And I think vice versa, right? I think offenses look at defense very generically and defense has to be a little bit more specific. And so I think that the value that I can add in, in helping our offense is I kind of got a pulse for how the defense is put together. I can figure out what they're doing, how they're calling things. Um, and sometimes that just helps sort through, you know, expectations of what we might get in certain formations and things like that. Coach, speaking of uh, the offense and defense, Duke just hired coach Santucci. What makes your relationship so special as this is fifth stop in his career and he's a young coach? Yeah, I think one, it's his passion for football. I think we share that. Um, and I think anytime you have a shared passion for something, it's going to bring you close together. Um, Tyler's been a phenomenal young coach and to watch him grow over the years has been awesome. Um, and now to put him in a position where he can lead our defense, I couldn't be more confident in what he'll do and how he'll do it. And so, um, you know, it's a unique perspective for me because, uh, you know, a lot of times you know, there, there are guys who had come under me or who had worked for me at some point 
that are now off doing really good things. And, and obviously you see it and you see it from afar. You know, Tyler's the one that I've actually seen the growth happen uh, in different times of his his career underneath me or with me. And so that part of it has been unique. And so um, it's, it's, it's awesome to get him back here with us. And I think he'll do a great job leading our defense. How important also was it that he he'd worked with, I think it's three other full-time assistants on staffs previously? Yeah, I, I think there's a you know, obviously there's a cohesion to what we're trying to do on defense, and I think you know having familiarity with the scheme and what we're trying to get accomplished was big for me. You know, I didn't really want to have to go out and and hire somebody who who was either new to or having to learn what we're trying to do on defense, or you know having to do it a different kind of way because I'm not quite ready to give up um, my defensive background just yet. And so. Uh, um, you know, I think obviously anytime you have all of that, it's great. And I think he'll fit right in. And, um, you know, he, he's got very similar to tree to me. So all the connections and ties that I have to our defensive staff are all the same ones he has. And so um, I recruited Coach Simpson's son. He coached Coach Simpson's son. Um, you know, so that those ties all exist with everybody on the staff. You say you're not willing to give up the defensive part of your your aspect yet, like like it's ever going to happen. Um, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll see. I'm just not, I'm not quite, I'm not quite ready to walk away yet. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame you. Uh, so basically you're a coaching mentor to coach Santucci. I was curious who was your coaching mentor and what's something you've adopted from them? Um, I mean, obviously it's gotta be Dave Clawson from a big picture standpoint. You know, I was with Dave the longest, um, and so that's that's probably where that comes from. Um, you know, what I've adopted from him is just leadership and the ability to be a CEO of a program. You know, I was with Dave everywhere he's been a head coach. And so I've seen how he kind of changed and evolved over the years from uh, the different levels we were at, the different areas we were at, and then just how he's grown. And so, um, you know, that journey has certainly shaped me and shaped my vision as a head coach for sure. I have also another question. Uh, so when you came in, it was the grind mentality. It was the culture, changing the culture. And people get lost in that word culture. But as a coach, I can truly appreciate going, seeing the transformation of the team. Uh, what was so special about the culture that you guys instilled? How did you do it to where now you're returning two captains in Jacob Monk, Dwayne Carter, along with Jamion Franklin, Calhoun, and other veterans this upcoming season where the portal and graduates, like, that's just so common now. People either try to go to the draft or they want to transfer that extra year. But you maintain basically the, a good part of your core after year one. Yeah, I think it was a lot of things. I think, one, um, you know, we wanted to come in and we wanted to provide a vision for these kids to have success immediately. And, you know, when we talked about that at the initial press conference, I don't think a lot of people – uh, were really on board or understood where I was coming from. But um, I don't think it's fair to take over a program with 85 kids on scholarship and talk about plans for three, four years down the road. And so I think they appreciated that. Um, I think we try to develop a we mentality as quick as we possibly could. And, um, you know, who we were at Duke became who I was very quickly. And it wasn't about um, you guys did this and I did that. It was just we are who we are and we've got to find a way to have success and get better. Um, and then I think, you know, as much as you, you know, as much as this is hard, as much as this is challenging, as much as this is a tough thing when you're trying to be a really elite college football program and college football player, I think we do try to have some fun. And I think we do try to connect with these guys on a lot of personal levels. You know, that's myself and our staff in particular. Um, but I think what you're, what you're finding is, 
is that those connections can become real and and kids are willing to um, still be relationship driven if those relationships are strong and they trust. And so I think you've got a lot of people that believe in what we're doing and are really bought into what we're doing. Um, and you see that when kids decide that they want to come back here and be part of this and be part of this program. And I think recruits are starting to feel it when they come on campus. I think recruits come on this campus and they feel a certain type of way about what's going on here. And obviously that will help launch this program too. Yeah. I mean, you had, even before the season, the June, July of recruiting, I mean, it was like 30 kids, 30 commits and seemed like 30 days of just going to the lake and having a good time and bonding with guys on the team that haven't even played a snap really underneath you. So it's the environment that you have in that locker room is definitely special and the fan base can feel that. So I just wanted to ask about that. Yeah, no, it's, 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 and people talk about culture, like it's, uh, it's something huge, but obviously, you know, when you have it right and you feel it the way you want it to be, um, you know, you cherish it because you know how strong it is and you know what these kids are willing to do for each other. Uh, and you see how that translates on the field. Is it possible for media to both overrate and underrate culture at certain places? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that, um, I think it's always it's always the underlying current to success. And I think um, people quickly want to dismiss it or not understand that um, talented teams fall apart quickly without it. Um, you know, teams overachieve very quickly with it. And I think even talented teams who do achieve have it, you know, like you look at, you know, the Eagles and the way they play, you know, just watching yesterday's games, right. You could see it on the Eagles. You could see it. Uh, on the Chiefs, you can see how they fight for each other, and um, there's a unity to, to which direction they're headed, and and that stuff matters at every level. Um, and when that goes away, and it can go away quickly, so it's something you're constantly trying to build and and keep intact. But when it goes away, you see it fragment your team really, really quickly. Knowing how important it is, um, how I, I guess you know priority number one, two, and three for you taking over a program for the first time? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, relationships are huge. Um, staying connected with your locker room is huge. I think if you ever become, you know, the head coach that that kids don't relate to or they're not hearing your messaging, um, you know, then you could say whatever you want and, and no one's listening and it doesn't matter. Uh, and so you've got to keep that strong as, as best you possibly can. And I think as you, you know, start getting into year two, year five, year eight at a program, um, that's when it becomes even more challenging because you got to find creative ways to keep that connection strong. And I think that's something we talk about around here a lot because it's really important. Coach, when you watched the game yesterday, do you watch it from a fan standpoint or a coach's standpoint? I'm always curious with coaches when they watch games. Yeah. So, so 90% fan, I, I honestly just try to sit and watch, but obviously there's a, there's kind of a level of understanding of what's going on out there or what's happening. And, um, you know, so, so some of the, you know, back and forth chess matches, chess matches between offense and defense, um, you certainly notice and, and are aware of, but honestly, I like to just sit on my couch and watch football at this time of year uh, and kind of turn it off and enjoy it. Do you have a team? Yeah. Uh, no. 
No, when you when you become a college, like the worst thing about being a college coach is, is you lose your ability to fan base anyone because um, your your the team you coach is like drives your life. Um, so yeah, you have no no fandom, no nothing. You're just kind of locked into who you are and what you're doing. Who was your team that you had to give up when you got? Into yeah, so when I when I grew up, I was a Cowboys fan. Um, yeah, that lasted probably all the way through college, and then and then that went that went bye bye pretty quick. Well, Coach, as a Cowboys fan myself, I watched the 49ers last week. Uh, they 49ers designed uh, their blitzes very well, and it was very similar to the, blitz, the blitzes that I saw Duke run, where it looked like they're coming to the left, but it really is coming from the right. And Fred Warner, the one player, Fred Warner, covered CeeDee Lamb seam route. It was disguised. Would you say, because you are a poker guy, would you say – Calling defensive plays is kind of like playing poker where you don't want to tip your hand too early on a blitz call. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think the the element of the skies on a quarterback, and, and obviously the better the quarterback, the harder it is to create that disguise element, um, means everything. I, I think anytime an offense can figure out what you're doing or get into a rhythm of what you're doing, it becomes very easy. Uh, I think you got to be able to change your game up. I think you got to be able to variate what you're doing. Uh, and the more you can do that and the more flexible you can be in your system, I think the more success you have. And as we wrap up here, Coach Connor, do you have anything else? No, no, that's uh, – I was I was going to ask something, but I'll save it for, for a, like, spring practice question or something like that. <laughs> Coach, I'm going to give you a two-minute drill as we wrap up. It's just rapid fire of, like, five or six questions. Pretty easy. You can give one. Yeah, one. let's do it. Let's do it. So, two-minute drill. What's your favorite movie? Few good men. Few good men. Great movie. Favorite quote. Favorite coaching quote. Motivation uh, quote. Do you have one? Favorite, favorite quote. Yeah, character is not made in a crisis. It's displayed there. I like that. Favorite sports team growing up. You said Cowboys. So no, 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 no. Favorite football team growing up. Favorite oh. sports team, Yankees. Yankees. Sorry. That, we got to get that on the record. Yankees all the way. Still Yankees fan to this day? That I am still a Yankees fan to this day. Uh, let's see. Who was your favorite player growing up? Uh, so actually not a Yankee. My favorite player was Ozzie Smith when I was a kid. Um, started playing shortstop. And then obviously as Jeter started to become part of the mainstay of Yankee lore, it became Derek Jeter. And uh, do you listen to anything before a game? If so, music, podcast, what is it? Yeah, so it's music and it's it's probably a little bit off of off of kilter for me so there's a little bit of meek mill there's a little bit of Mano, there's a little bit of jay-z um it's a game day mix that that kind of gets me going and if you weren't a coach what do you think you'd be doing that is a really good question i think the <laughs> reason why i am a coach is because i couldn't figure out what i would be doing without football so um how about a lawyer something along those lines okay i'll take that meek mill that explains a tweet from over the summer when you said, hold up, wait a minute. You thought I was finished when you. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a meek mill tweet. I knew that. I knew that, <laughs> on that one. I didn't know if you got hacked and somebody took over your, tw your Twitter or what. I, I actually, so for the record, this is something that probably needs to be out there. I run my Twitter. I do not have anyone else who runs my Twitter. Instagram's a whole nother story. I still can't figure out Instagram, <laughs> but Twitter and me get along really well. I run my Twitter. I handle that on a day-to-day -day basis. Coach, I appreciate your time. I really do appreciate you joining us. Uh, for people, Duke fans out there, come to the spring game, April 22nd. 
free admission. This team deserves it. Coach, I really appreciate your time with us. Yeah, and season tickets. Season tickets on sale. Go get your season tickets to Duke football next year. We got to fill Brooks Field at Wallace Wade Stadium next fall. I invented man, sweat, man, popping man, bottles, putting supermodels man, in the cab. Proof. Man, I guess man, I got man, my swagger man, back. Man, Truth.